The story is told of a pastor who went to visit an elderly woman of his congregation. As he sat at the couch, he noticed a small or large, rather large bowl of peanuts that were sitting in front of him. They chatted for about an hour, and during the course of their conversation, he asked the woman, would you mind, I haven't had lunch, would you mind if I just had some of those peanuts? And she said, fine, and they continued to talk for about an hour. And at the end of the hour, he noticed as he was getting up to leave that he thought he had just eaten a few of the nuts and almost ate the whole bowl and felt guilty and said, I'm, I'm so sorry, I only wanted a few, but I ended up eating you know, the whole bowl, and, and uh, can I buy you some more peanuts? And he reached into his wallet to give her some money, and she said, oh, no, Pastor, you know what, don't even think about it, because ever since I lost my teeth, all I can do is suck the chocolate off of them anyway. <laughs> and what's the point of that story? The story reminds us of the danger and foolishness of acting upon what we see without checking into all the facts. In our ongoing study, see, I can make anything work. I really can. I get people all the time, I don't know if you could ever use this. <laughs> Try me. In our ongoing study in the book of James, um, we've already learned the importance of being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And uh, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, if you've got your Bibles turned there, we get a more complete picture of how a Christian who is growing in Christ should apply these commands of being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And it particularly relates to what we'll be discussing today, and that is our relationship to other people, particularly those people who are different from us. The commands to be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And in James chapter 2, we get a more complete picture of what God is trying to teach us in our relationship with one another. So James chapter 2, if you're there, we read these words. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in this good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, do not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and, have, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In this passage, we see that we're to be growing beyond personal favoritism. 
And we're introduced to a common problem in James's day. Jewish people at that time coveted recognition and honor, and they competed with one another for the praise of man. A good example of that is found in Luke chapter 14, if you want to turn back and see how Jesus addresses the same problem. In Luke chapter 14, we see a similar or parallel story to what it is that we're trying to understand in James chapter 2. And I think as we look at this and tie it together, you'll notice how, how complete it becomes as far as a picture is concerned. Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 7, we read these words. It says, And he, speaking of Jesus, began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, then you will have the honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In this story, in Jesus' day as is today, there were status symbols that uh, help people enhance and protect their high standing in society. If you were invited to the right homes, and you were invited to the right places, and you were able to sit in the right location as far as the, the, uh, the uh, meal is concerned, then you were considered to be important. You were considered to be a somebody. And in New Testament times, the closer you sat to the host the higher you stood on the social ladder and the more attention that you drew upon yourself. And also, if they got more attention, then people would begin to talk that this must be someone who is important. And if you're that important, if I'm going to host a party, then I've got to make sure to include you on the people that need to come to that particular occasion. And so as we look at all this, we begin to realize that there's a pecking order, a system that's been established that was recognized at that time. And in fact, it was so recognized that even Jesus' own disciples continue to argue about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. It helps us to understand what their thought process was when they began to argue among themselves or when James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, went to Jesus and said, Lord, we want you to do something for us. And he said, what is it that you want? He goes, well, we want, when you establish your kingdom, we want to sit at your right and at your left, at the places of, of, of honor at your table. So when everybody looks at you, they'll see us and realize that we are someone special. And Jesus said to them, do you really understand what you're asking? And then he went on to say that it's not my place to give it, but my Father who's in heaven will honor those who he deems that are worth honoring. But the point that he made was this, and he blew the whole system apart. Jesus had a tendency of doing that. The world system, the accepted system was, hey, as soon as those doors opened up, man, everybody made a beeline to the front table, and they knocked each other over to see who got there first to recline at the position of recognition. Now, Jesus, as he's discussing this with his disciples, throws them through a loop when he says this. Hey, you know what? I know that's how the world operates. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you've got to be a servant to all. And they went, ah. Oh. Emphasis on all. Emphasis on servant. He says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, 
then you can't buy into the system that this world has because it doesn't make any sense. But you need to be a servant to all. When Jesus advised the guests to take the lowest position or places at the particular table, he wasn't guaranteeing them some type of gimmick to be promoted. He wasn't saying, well, if you falsely humble yourself, then God will recognize your humility and he will exalt you. Why? Because God knows our motives and he knows our hearts and he knows whether we're falsely humbling ourselves or not, whether we're playing the game. Well, see, here's a formula now. And the formula is, if I humble myself before God, then God, you have to exalt me. If I have an attitude of humility, then you must promote me. That's what you say. I'm naming it and claiming it. God's like, hey, you know what? I know your heart. I know your motives. And your false humiliation is just as disgusting to me as your sense of pride. And so I know you. So don't play any games with me. It's interesting to see how that works. You notice what he's saying. He's saying, hey, look, when you go into this party or this banquet that you've been invited to, then why don't you just stay in the back of the room? Because if you were intended to be in the front of the room, guess what? God knows where to find you. You're not lost in his sight. And if you were intended, in God's eyes, to be brought up to the front and to be recognized, you'll be brought up to the front and recognized. Now, on the other hand, how silly is this if you go running to the front and you take your place in the front of the group and somebody comes up to you and says, excuse me a minute, uh, you're in the wrong seat. Oh, uh, but I'm like, oh, I, I must have left my ticket at home. And you go walking to the back. Have you ever seen anybody at a sporting event that took somebody's seat? And they kind of, you know, they kind of give the old bluff, you know, they go like this, they hurry up, flash, they go down, they see empty seats, you know, because where we sit up at the top, we're always looking down saying, look at all those good empty seats. <laughs> Although now you can say, look at all these empty seats. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you see people that go and they sit down there, and then all of a sudden, it's like, if you've ever done that, and, and I, I'm going to confess my sin before God and before you, because God already knows that I've done it, but I see the seat, you go sit down, and then every person that comes, you're just going, oh, please, God, oh, please, God, don't make this. <laughs> and, and, and if you see somebody whispering to an usher, get up and go. Because they're coming for you. And it's embarrassing. The first place I ever learned it was that we were on a charter flight when I was working with the Rams. And fortunately, I got to travel with them. But I always made sure that I sat where all the just common folks were sitting. Uh, the media people, the car dealers, all this kind of stuff. They used to travel on those things. So I just, not that there's anything wrong with media people or car dealers or people like that. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but, but I always made sure that I sat where, they, where, where I, I sat up in the front of the plane because all the players sat in the back of the plane. And if anybody walked past a certain point, the players always let them know, danger, Will Robinson. You know what I'm saying? Hey, looky-loo, hey, got a looky-loo coming too far back in the plane. And everybody start, you know, looking. And, and it start, and it's like, uh, you turn around. So I learned you just sit up front. And what the most incredible thing is when you're sitting up front and one of the guys come up and goes to you, what are you sitting up here with these people for? I said, well, because I don't know. Come on back here with us. Oh, man, that used to, that used to be the greatest. Because all the car dealers and all these people making a lot more money than me, you know, and feeling a lot more important than me would see me get up and go, okay, now who's that? <laughs> and it's hilarious because that's the system that we're in. I mean, when I used to walk out of the locker room with guys, people would run over to me and say, hey, can I have your autograph? I said, like, well, I wouldn't. I mean, sure, but I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think you're going to do with it? I mean, I don't know. 
No, man. It's like, no, and I'd always go, no, man, I'm not, I mean, I'm nobody. They'd be like, oh, no, man, you're somebody. We saw you were with all the people who were somebody, so we know you're somebody because you're with somebody. Come on, man, would you sign this? No, man, I'm nobody. And stand there and argue with this guy. He's like, no, I'm nobody. Yes, you are somebody. And then I'm thinking, you know what? I'm a child of God. I'm Prince Charles. Sign that thing. I am somebody. Just not who they thought. So you'd be like, you know, it, but, but the point that, that Jesus is making is it's like, hey, you know what? Humility is a fundamental grace in the Christian life, and yet it's so elusive. And the reason it's so elusive is because if you think you have it, you've lost it. Think about that. I like the definition I saw recently of humility. Humility is not, not thinking meanly of yourself or demeaning yourself. Humility simply is not thinking of yourself at all. And I like that. See, in Philippians 2, if we're going to be more like Jesus, Philippians 2 says that we should have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself, and he humbled himself to the point of obedience, and obedience to the point of death, even on the cross. And because he did that, therefore, he was given a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name. Isn't that wonderful? See, you know, we're to have that same attitude. This whole study is about being more like Jesus. And Jesus had an attitude. uh, He did not promote himself, but he humbled himself. And therefore, God highly exalted him. See, you notice another problem, too, if you're still in the Luke passage that, that, the, uh, that Jesus addressed at this so-called party. See, Jesus knew that the host had invited his guests for two reasons. First was either to pay them back for a party that he had been invited to, or the second was so that they would be indebted to him and have to come to a party. If they had it, he would have to be invited. Jesus knew that. How did he know it? Because he knew their heart. He knew his heart. He knew his motives. He knew exactly why he was doing what he was doing. And what was interesting was he went on and said that to the one who had invited him, he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return. Bang! He nailed him. He says, and repayment comes to you in full. He went, and then he says, but when you give a reception, I want you to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame. And the blind. See, those people never got invited to the rich people parties. It wasn't socially correct to invite a poor person who could not repay you. It was not socially correct to to invite a crippled, handicapped, physically handicapped, mentally handicapped person to come and be in the presence of such people. The irony is this. If you would look in your Bible instead of looking off to that side, you will see that... Jesus went to this party, and in verse 3, we notice that he had, been, he had invited, the host had invited in verse 2, a man who was suffering from dropsy. Now, dropsy was a physical ailment that caused the body to bloat or to swell. It was an, uh, it was an accumulation or excessive accumulation of fluids in the body. So the person's body would be, uh, would be bloated, his face would be bloated, his arms would be bloated, his legs would be bloated. And from an external or outward appearance, you would see that. And those type of people were never invited to these functions. However, they chose to invite this one person because they were testing Jesus to see if he would heal this person on the Sabbath. That's the only reason this person got the invite. 
So Jesus used that as a word picture to be able to say, oh, you know what? Don't be inviting this person just to test me, but invite this person because that person and people like them cannot repay you, but I will who see what you do and know your heart and know your motives. That's what he's saying. You will be blessed. Since they don't have the means to repay you, don't worry about it. God has the means to repay you. Now, before we start pointing our finger at these people, and I've always often heard it say this, that when we point at another person, we've got one point, finger pointing out and you've got three fingers pointing back. And the reason I say before we get too hard on these people and the system that they have, the question I have for you is this, has much changed in the last 2,000 years? Think about it. Do we not have the same problem today? Are there not ladder climbers among us today? We see it in politics, we see it in business, we see it in society, and unfortunately, we even see it in the church. Regardless of age, when we got new people who come into our assembly, regardless of age, it is very hard oftentimes for new people to break in, if you know what I'm talking about. Our modern world is very competitive. And it's easy for God's people to get more concerned about profit and loss than about sacrifice and service. And so as we look around us, we have to maintain or must strive to maintain an unselfish attitude and to be more like Jesus when it comes to recognizing those who are new in our midst. Now, what was being mentioned earlier was a reality, and that is when we have this many people, sometimes we don't know whether someone's new or someone isn't new. It's embarrassing to me when I meet someone for the first time. They say, oh, oh we've been coming for six years. And, and I, I uh, oh, are you new? Well, no, I'm not new from the standpoint of being here as far as time is concerned. What are you saying? And so my point or the challenge or the application of what we're learning, because we want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, is that we have to make sure we're constantly sensitive to those who we may think are new or we may not know are new, but you know what? When in doubt, treat everyone with respect as if it's the first time that you've met them. And not to be comfortable, as we often are, in sitting in the same place and being with the same people and being with the same group where we exclude, and it's not even by design oftentimes, and it certainly isn't premeditated, because I know most of you and I know that's not the situation. But we need to be challenged to be constantly aware of the fact that we need to be sensitive to the person who is new in our midst. And it doesn't matter how young or how old we are, new people have a tough time and an awkward time of trying to break in. And if we don't extend and initiate to them that, hey, you are welcome, then there's a good chance that they will not feel welcome. See, Jesus and the Word of God is very relevant, not only 2,000 years ago, but certainly today. Which lead us, leads us back to the problem of personal favoritism that we find in the book of James. Now, in our last meeting together, we learned that personal favoritism... In fact, go back to James chapter 2, because that's where we're going to be. In James chapter 2, we learned of this whole idea of personal favoritism. And if you recall, personal favoritism in our culture is known by other names. Sometimes we call it racism. Sometimes we call it classism. Sometimes we call it culturalism. The problem in James's day, as is often true today, were that Christians 
were judging others around them by assigning worth based upon what they saw, the external criteria. Things like the color of a person's skin, the clothes that they wore, the horses and the donkeys that they owned or rode, the parties that they hosted, their nationality, their accents, their customs, their culture. And again, I've got to ask the question, has much changed in the past 2,000 years? Because how many of us still do the same today? Ask yourself the question, do I judge others by the color of their skin, by the clothing that they wear, by the house that they live in and how it's furnished, by the vehicles that they own or drive or we think that they own, we're not sure, they may be laced, we don't really know, (laughs) by their job title, by their occupation, by their height, by their weight, by whether they have facial hair or they don't, by their hairstyle or lack of hair, by their accent, by their dress, by their tattoos, by their body piercings. You know, that's a fascinating thing that's going on right now, this piercing thing. And, uh, you know, it's hard sometimes to get past those things. I like one mother who worked hard to get past of it when she learned that her son had another body piercing She was sitting at the breakfast table and said to her husband, Honey, it sure has been easier to get Junior up for school since he got his new nose ring. (laughs) You know, always looking for the positive. Got to like that about a lady. But on a serious note, and let me kind of take a serious step here, because, not that everything else isn't, but it's very important that we understand we live in a world where first impressions make a huge difference. It's very important that we know this. Even though we know, and we're going to learn as believers, we have to learn to get beyond first impressions. We've got we to examine the heart, because that's what God examines, the heart. But we have to also be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, and understand that we live in a world of first impressions, and outward appearances mean a lot. And so we had this conversation with some of our employees. We're in the construction business, and some of our guys, if you've ever been out on the job site, you know, it's a place where most of you would be frightened to have to go ask for help. Uh, no, you go. No, you go. No, let's just die here, you know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, we had some of our guys that decided, you know, they were going to go ahead and, and color their hair, whatever the funky color of the week was, uh, you know, whatever came out of the box of Cheerios, you know, here's the, the, new, the, you know, the new, new flavor of the month. And, and, you know, and, and have ear, their ears pierced and their nose pierced or whatever they wanted to have pierced because apparently we don't inflict enough pain upon them as our employees. And so they therefore go out looking for additional pain. But anyway, and we had to sit down and say, look, you know what? You guys are good at what you do. I mean, that's why you work here. And we respect that and we appreciate what you have to offer. Said, but there's something inherently wrong in a system where when you walk up to someone's house, they won't let you in. <laughs> now... You know, I don't know how you think you're going to get the installation accomplished from out in your truck or down at the police station. You see where we're trying to go with this? Because we do live in a world of first impressions. And even though first impressions aren't always right or the most accurate way to gauge another person's heart, we have to be wise and understand that people do make an impression by how they present themselves. So, you know, let's not go with the argument. We hear it all the time. I hear especially from young people. Hey, well, you know what? Well, they don't know our heart. You know what? They will never get to know your heart as long as you are offensive to them in your first appearance. They're not going to want to know your heart. And we need to recognize that and understand that. 
And I'm not saying that we always have to be what everybody wants us to be, but you know what? The Apostle Paul said this, I became everything I needed to be to all men so that I can win some to Christ. And if we've got some part of our body or some part of our life that is offensive to people, then we need to recognize that. And also, the statements that we make oftentimes are, are, are a reflection of our heart. When we don't really want to admit it. I'll give you an example. When my, our daughter had a soccer game yesterday. We went afterwards and we went to a local fast food restaurant to eat. And in walked guys who had KKK and all kind of stuff all etched into their heads, etched into their bodies. They came in with no shirts. And as they were, there was a lot of minority workers that were there. And as those people were walking by, they, they were making comments about them. Not to their face. But it just aggravated. It, it it, it, I just wanted to say something. And fortunately, they didn't say anything in front of the person because that would have been the line that would have caused me to get involved. But they were just talking among themselves. But when I looked at that, the first impression that I had was, there's a skinhead, there's a racist, there's somebody who hates people just for no other reason that their skin color is different from theirs, and you know what? They're an abomination in the sight of God. And if I was working in that restaurant, they would have either got a shirt on or they would have been asked to leave. And if they had a problem with it, then I could have called the police for help. But we don't acquiesce to the lowest common denominator in society because all of us have an opinion. Not when the opinion is to express that which is detrimental to the health and well-being of those around us. That's why we have laws to protect us from one another. But the point that I'm trying to make is this, that we've got to be very careful, and that's what James addresses in this whole problem of external appearance versus that of the heart. And so in addition to this, this whole idea, what we've learned is that there is the sin of partiality that was uh, identified for us in James chapter 2. In verses 2 through 4, we saw that. The sin of partiality was the situation. There were two people that walked into a church, into the synagogue, into the gathering, into the assembly. And there was a distinction that was made between them based on external appearances and nothing else. You are wealthy, we like you, you are poor, we don't have anything to do with you. If you come back, we're going to make you feel uncomfortable until you leave and you go somewhere else because we don't like your kind around here. And the situation and the separation that took place was evil in the sight of God because he said, have you not become judges with evil motives? Have you not made a distinction between people with even evil motives? The motives were, you can help us, you can't, you're in, you're out. And God says that is not to be the case or the place with God's people. The second thing that we began to talk about was the stupidity of partiality. The stupidity of it. Now what's amazing to me sometimes is that I get more feedback on things that are things that you would think would be non-essentials than that which is essential. So I'm trying to eliminate some of those things to keep you from not listening to the rest of what I have to say. So if you've been here long enough, you know that actually the jokes and stories have gotten a lot better. And, uh, and the reason for it is, oh, some of you are going, now you think, okay, so i still got some work to do. But anyway, the, the issue is this. So I get people who are offended by the fact that I use the word stupid in describing those who are racist or classist or culturalist who have some type of pre uh, prejudice toward others based on externals. I use the word stupid, and people get hung up on the word stupid instead of on what was being said about being stupid. Now that's stupid. But it's also, stupidity is also biblical. My new favorite verse is Jeremiah 5.17. All mankind is stupid, devoid of knowledge. The point, the Bible clearly teaches that mankind is not on the same page with God, which is exactly why there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is destruction. 
That is exactly why God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways, and I'm not changing my ways and thoughts, so you better change yours and adopt my way of thinking. That is what the Word of God has to say. And the only way that we have the mind of Christ is that we know the Word of God. Because through the Word of God, He teaches us how He thinks and how He feels and how He wants us to live as His children. So He's saying this, if you are a racist, if you are a classist, if you are a culturalist, if you are a person who judges people by outward appearances, it's time that you stop thinking like that and you adopt my way of thinking. And that's what we're talking about. It ignores spiritual reality. Notice what he says here. God's, God's instruction, his choosing, in fact, from a practical standpoint, he often chooses the th- simple things to confound the wise. His choosing, his grace is extended to those who cannot earn and do not deserve salvation. There is something fundamental from a spiritual reality that we need to understand, and that's this. That there are none righteous, no, not one. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We need to recognize and understand there is something that ties us all together as human beings, regardless of of, of our race, regardless of our class, regardless of our culture, whatever it is, there is a common bond, and that is this, that we are all sinners, and we are lost before God, we're on our way to judgment, we're on our way to condemnation, we are on our way to hell, and we would all end up there because that's what we deserve. But thank God. But thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. While the wages of sin is death, it is equally true that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The equalizer is that we are all guilty before God. And the only thing that makes one person not guilty any longer, instead of continuing to be guilty, is that we have humbled ourselves before God and cried out and said, Lord, save me from the judgment that's to come. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I want him to come into my life. And I want him to forgive me. And I want him to to make me clean and to make me whole. And I want to be a child of God to those who believe in his name. That's the only thing that separates us. And we need to recognize and understand that. As I was thinking that, you know, God ignores national differences. Do you realize that? It was Peter, a Jew, who couldn't stand anybody that wasn't a Jew, that God called into the house of Cornelius. And at the end of it, he preached the gospel to the Gentiles because he realized the problem at that time was this. The Jews were saying, before you can put your faith and trust in Christ as a Gentile, you've got to become a Jew first. The first step is become a Jew. The next step is then you become a Christian by believing in Jesus Christ. But you can't go from Gentile to Christian without passing uh, being a Jew. And that's what they believe. And there are a lot of us who believe the same kind of nonsense. Somehow or another, you can't become a Christian. You can't go from being, being black to a believer without coming through the Caucasian race. Or you can't become a Christian unless you're Hispanic and you become black first, and then you become a believer. And there's all kind of rules that we make up that are absolutely wrong in the sight of God. Whosoever may come will come, and you don't have to pass through anybody else. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. We need to recognize that and understand that. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that at the end of all of this, Peter, who could not stand Gentiles, said, you know what? I realize that God is not a respecter of persons. And forgive me for what I have done. He ignores social differences. You realize to God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Oriental, whether you are rich or whether you're poor, whether you're fat, whether you're skinny, whether you're ugly, whether you're good-looking, whatever all the stuff is that we make, whether you buy your clothes at Nordstrom's or you buy your clothes, you know, I don't know, somewhere else, 
the point that he's making is, I don't know, what do I know about buying clothes? I just put on what my wife gets out. She said, wear that. Because you know when she wasn't here what I looked like, so you know that's where I'm going. But the point of all of it is, is this, is that, you know what, there is nothing that we have that has not come to us from the hand of God. We are who we are because it comes from God. We have what we have because it comes from God. I was trying to think of an illustration that I was running the other day, and I thought, you know what, that would be like this. That would be like Bill Gates coming to you or just choosing five people at random and saying, look, I'm going to give you $50 million. And he chooses five people at random. He says, I'm going to give you $50 million. The only thing you've got to do is accept whether or not you believe I'm going to do it. And if you say, yes, I'd like it, I'll go ahead and deposit it into your bank accounts or however you want it. I'm going to give you $50 million. And he chooses five people when he doesn't. And all you do is say, yeah, that's great with me, no problem. And so you receive it, you accept the, the $50 million bucks. Now all the people in your life begin to look at you differently. Why? Because now you've got $50 million. And everybody knows you got $50 million, so everybody selling something knows you got $50 million. All of a sudden, they're going to treat you a lot differently than when you didn't have anything. Because now you got something they want, which is what? The money. They still could care less about you. They just want the money. Now, can you imagine for a moment how ridiculous it would be for a person who received $50 million because it was just given to them to walk around as if somehow they're better than somebody who doesn't have anything because now they got $50 million? What did they do to deserve the $50 million? Nothing. Do you think Bill Gates thinks more highly of them than he did before he gave them the $50 million? No. Why? Because he knows he gave it to them. Now, where does it all start? With the giver. God is not a respecter of persons because he understands that everything we have and everything we are is because he gave it to us. Now, he wants us to understand that. You think you're better than someone else because you've got more than them. You don't understand. It's only because the giver has given it to you. When are we going to grasp that truth? The stupidity of partiality, it ignores spiritual reality, and that is that everything comes from the hand of God. We need to recognize it and understand it. It also ignores the place of faith. God's people are to be walking by what? Faith. Not by sight. We're not to look at other people like everyone else looks at each other. Because we're to look at each other through God's eyes. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. The book of Hebrews, one book back, read it when you have a chance this week. Hebrews chapter 11. You know what? Faith always rests upon an object. And the object upon which the Christian faith rests is what? The word of Do you realize that the reason that the religious leaders did not see Jesus for who he was was because they did not believe the word of God? God's word prophesied that Jesus would not have anything of appearance that would cause people to want to be attracted to him or to look at him as someone special other than the masses of people on the face of the earth. The word of God taught him that. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. He was the poor man that was rejected by the self-righteous nation. It was a, he was unlike the foxes and the birds. He had no place to rest his head. He had no home. He had no material things. He had no stuff that we think is so important in our world today. Had you and I met him while he was ministering on earth, guess what? We'd have seen nothing physically or materially that would have ever attracted us to him. But you realize that he was the very essence, the very glory of God dwelled within him? John chapter 1. That he, the glory of God indwelt Jesus Christ and man missed it because they judged him based on outward appearances. 
They judged him based on human standards. They rejected him. He came from the wrong city, Nazareth of Galilee. He wasn't a graduate of their accepted schools of divinity. He didn't have the official approval of the people in power. He had no wealth. His followers were, were publicans and sinners. And yet the Bible teaches that he was the very glory, the very essence of God in human form. And they missed him. And the reason they missed him is because they didn't believe what the word of God said about him. They went by sight and not by faith in the word of God. It reminds me of a story that I heard of a lady who was in faded gingham dress and her husband was dressed in a homespun threadbare suit and they stepped off a train in Boston. They walked timidly without an appointment into Harvard University President's outer office. Secretary could tell in a moment that such backs, backwoods country hicks had no business at Harvard and probably didn't even deserve to be in Cambridge. She frowned as she viewed the couple. They said, we want to see the president. She said, he'll be busy all day long. We'll wait, said the lady. For hours, the secretary ignored him, hoping the couple would finally become discouraged and go away. Unfortunately, they did not. So the secretary grew frustrated and finally disturbed the president. And even though it was a chore she always regretted, she said, maybe if you just see him for a few minutes, they'll leave. He sighed in exasperation and he nodded. So someone of importance, obviously, as he recognized, didn't have time to spend with them, but he detested gingham dresses and homespun suits cluttering up his outer office because you never knew who was going to come to visit him that day. So the president walked stern-faced with dignity, strutted toward the couple and said, uh, the lady told him, said, we have a son who attended Harvard for a year and he loved Harvard. He was happy here, but a year ago he was accidentally killed and my husband and I would like to erect a memorial to him somewhere on the campus. The president wasn't touched. In fact, he was shocked. He said, Madam, we can't put up a statue for every person who attended Harvard and died. You realize if we did, this place would look like a cemetery. She said, oh, no, we don't want to erect a statue. We thought we'd like to give a building to Harvard. The president rolled his eyes. He glanced at their dress and then exclaimed, a building. Do you have any idea how much a building costs? We have over $7.5 million in the physical buildings at Harvard alone. For a moment, the lady was silent. The president was pleased. He could get rid of him now. The lady turned to her husband and said, is that all it costs to start a university? He says, why don't we just start one of our own? And her husband nodded. The president's face got a little bit contorted. And at that point, they walked out of the president's office. And Mr. and Mrs. Leland Stanford walked all the way and traveled to Palo Alto, where they established a university that bears their name a memorial to their son who loved Harvard and yet wasn't accepted because of the way his parents dressed. You know, I think there's obviously a lesson in that for all of us, and that is that we've got to be very careful about our rush to judgment because of what we physically see in the appearance of others. It also ignores God's priorities. From a human point of, point of view, God chooses the poor instead of the rich. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27, we read these words. For you, are, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh and not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. I believe it was Queen Elizabeth who said one day in conversation as she read this verse, she said, thank God for the M in many. Because God... His invitation is open to whosoever would come. And you're not excluded because you're poor. You're not excluded because you're rich. 
You're not excluded or included because you're black or white or Hispanic or Oriental. You're not included or excluded because you wear certain clothes. It's whosoever will may come. And we need to recognize that and understand that. As we look at this and begin to realize what's going on, I think it's time that we take a look at the good news. And the good news is this, that there is a solution to partiality. There's a solution to this problem of partiality. You who are growing into the image of Christ should know that there's an answer to prejudice. There's a cure for discrimination. The solution to the sin of partiality is conformity to the standards that the Word of God sets forth for all of God's people. We have got to adopt the mind of Christ when it comes to how we treat one another. The only solution to racism, culturalism, clashism is that we adopt God's way of thinking and lay ours aside. God, this is the way I was raised. God, this is the way I think. God, this is what I saw all through my life. But you know what, God? I already know that I don't know what you know, and so I'm going to lay all that aside, and I'm going to allow you. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be teachable, and you tell me how I should be looking at those around me. And the solution is very simple, and that's this. And it's amazing how simple this is, but yet how profound. We're told that we should obey the royal law. Notice in verse 8 of James chapter 2. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Notice that. What's the royal law? Remember, there was a, a lawyer who came to Jesus and said, Hey, Lord, can you kind of cut it to the chase and just tell us what the greatest commandments are? So many of them. It's so hard to follow them. Just kind of give me the top five, the top ten, or whatever it is, and I'll just work on those because the rest, man, I can't do all that. And he said that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and that you shall love your neighbor, what? As yourself. And in those two commandments, everything that the Word of God wants us to know is summarized in those two commandments. So what is the answer to the sin of partiality or personal favoritism or racism, classism, culturalism, whatever you want to call it? What's the solution? That we obey the royal law. And the royal law was royal because it was given to us by the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is the law that tops every other law. And in fact, it was Jesus who said that all of the law is summarized through this law. And that's this, that you love God first and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Regardless of your neighbor's skin color, regardless of what car your neighbor drives, regardless of how much money your neighbor has, regardless of the, all the things that would cause us to have differences, we are to love them how? As we want to be loved in return. Put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel if you were judged for no other reason than you look different from someone else? How would you feel? Some of us need to be strangers in another culture sometimes to understand how we would feel when people look at you out of the corner of their eyes, when they walk away from you, when you walk toward them, when they ignore you, when you sit down to be waited upon in a restaurant. You need to be put in that position, and I'll guarantee you this, that you would never do that to anybody else again in your life if you have the love of Christ in your heart. We need to put ourselves in that cultural position and understand, like the story I told you about being in Europe where we were ignored and we were looked at and we were a minority. Then you understand. One of the best things that ever happened to my son is that we have friends who used to live in this area. And obviously, as you look around here, we're talking a pretty lily-white area. And uh, yet he made friends with a, with a young man who he played sports with at school who ended up moving back east, and he's, he's black. He went back to his home. He went to their, his church. He was the only white dude in the whole church. 
And it was interesting because my son knew because he grew up in an environment where we never were prejudiced toward people for any external reasons whatsoever. I, I judge people based on their behavior. And you know what? And so does the Word of God. And we should never get away from that and to judge people accordingly, according to the standard of the Word of God. But he went and he was comfortable and he recognized and understand what it's like to be in an environment where you're different than those around you. And to be able to say, you know what? I will make sure that I never make anybody who's different feel different. And I want us to understand something. And that is this. When we reach out to people around us, we need to be sensitive to the fact that they may be feeling different. And we need to bridge that gap. I don't care if they're young or old, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're black or white or whatever. It doesn't make any difference if they wear glasses or don't, if they're fat or they're skinny or they look different. I want every person here to recognize our responsibility to God is to never judge people from their outward appearances, but to get to know them for who they are inside. Because if we do that, guess what? We'll be doing well. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you know what? Well, this is kind of hard, you know, because I don't really feel like it right now. I, don't, I have a problem with this culture. i got a problem with this race. i got a problem with this. i got a problem with that. Hey, but you know what, what's wonderful about biblical love? It's not based on how you feel. The, wonder thing, the wonderful thing about biblical love is, guess what? It's based on choice. You choose to love others as you would have them love you. Period. Case closed. Don't care how you feel. God don't care how you feel. Now, what you may want to do is confess the feeling to God and say, God, I know I'm supposed to love this person, but I don't feel like it. Can you remove that feeling from my heart? Amen. I'm going to do what's right because I know that's what the Word of God teaches. We need to recognize and understand it. You know what the solution to division in the church is? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about all the divisions. Oh, well, you don't like missions. Oh, well, you don't like the high school group. Oh, you don't like the college group. Oh, you know what? You have this gift. You have that group. You have this, you know, you go there, you go here. All the divisions that go on, you know what? He says, I'll show you a more excellent way. You know what it's called? It's called loving people. Just call it loving people. 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 12 for a reason. I'll show you a more excellent way. You know what? Just love people. We're all different. Love people. Just love people like you want to be loved. Number two, call partiality what it is. And you know what it is? Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. You want to know why this country has not done everything that it can when it comes to racism and classism and culturalism? More importantly, you don't want to know why God's people haven't done much about this problem? Because we've called it everything else but what it is. We say, well, it's personal differences, indiscretion, bad habit, alternative lifestyle. That's just the way I am. That's the way I was raised. We come up with all these kind of little tag phrases and sayings. You know why we haven't dealt with it as it is? Because we've never called it what it is. And you know what it is? It's sin. It's sin. It's falling short of the standard of God. It's sin. And until we call sin, sin, we will never be able to deal with sin in our culture. As long as we're given all the sin in our culture, some quaint new name, we will never recognize it for what it is. And it's sin. And it's a cancer. And it's not content to stay in its own place, but it's invasive, it's evasive, and it goes after the very cultural foundations and the morals of a nation when we allow sin to be called something other than it is. 
We need to call sin, sin. And racism is sin. You may not like to hear it, but hear it for what it is. Classism is sin. Culturalism is sin. Sin is sin. Period. We need to call it what it is. And the reality of it is, is that some of us say, well, you know, I've never, and notice the illustration that he gives, but I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. And the illustration he gave is this. Can you imagine a murderer standing before the judge saying, what's your defense, young man? Well, my defense is this, Your Honor. I never had committed adultery with anyone. But you murdered someone. But I never committed adultery. Do I get any good brownie points for that? Can you imagine being a racist and say, but I never committed murder? But you know what Jesus said about a racist heart? You've already committed murder in your heart. You got that kind of hatred in your heart? You've already committed murder. Why? Because as soon as you had the opportunity, it's going to happen. Say, but I never committed adultery. Well, you know what, though? If you're lusting after a woman in your heart, guess what? You've already committed adultery because all you're lacking is the opportunity, and that's coming next. Because why? Out of the heart of man, the heart of man exposes every evil deed that then follows it. You realize that that's where it all starts in the heart? It all starts in the heart. Every sin starts in the heart. That's why Jesus exposed the heart. Said it's wicked and evil and deceitful above all else, and only God can understand it. The world is filled with it. You know, I noticed that I'm looking through the paper and I just am amazed at all the evil acts that take place because of evil hearts. How about the man who just picked out the Jewish community and just went around shooting people? Why? For no other reason than they were Jewish? Why? It's an action that's, that, that is coming from an evil heart. But I never ki- killed anybody. Oh, yeah? Yes, you have. And yes, you will if you keep on fertilizing that type of hate in your heart. There's a racial battle. It's taking place in Tennessee between migrant workers because they've given daycare opportunities. And I look at that, and it's amazing to me that this is the kind of stuff that they'll steal more than they buy, is what a local store owner says. I had three dozen rubber gloves. One bought a pair. The rest stole the rest. You can't watch them. They're like watching a bunch of flies. Can you believe that that kind of talk still goes on in this nation? But it's happening all over the place. Here's one from Australia. From 1910 until 1970, 100,000 aboriginal children were taken from their parents. Why? Because light-skinned children were given to white families for adoption and dark-skinned children were put in orphanages. Do you realize that social action is always a reflection of the heart of its culture? And until God's people, the light that we're supposed to be, the salt that we're supposed to be, stands up and says... That is sin and it's wrong before God and we're not going to allow it to happen. The only reason that slavery was overcome in this nation were because white men stood up and saw it as an abomination before God. Guys like Abraham Lincoln and William Wilberforce who were slave tra- a slave trader that came to know Christ said that what he was doing was an abomination before God. And those who were in the majority that th- saw the minority being treated wrong were the ones that stepped up and said we're going to be counted among them. Don't be comfortable because you're in the in-group. Because it won't be long before another group comes along and says, you're not in anymore, and now you'll be the target of such affliction. We need to stand and do what's right before God because it's right before God, regardless of the cost and the consequences. The problem is that God's people haven't done what we're supposed to do because we're comfortable being in the in-group. We need to do what's right before God. And you know what's right before God? That we show mercy to all people. That we show mercy to all people. And you know what's wonderful about this truth? 
I want you to notice something. One day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as believers and we will give an account of how we lived our life. And what's wonderful about it is this. I want you to listen very carefully and I want you to understand the depth of what's being taught here because it'll change the way you treat people if you understand what God is telling us we need to do. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. Notice. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. You and I who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ will never be judged for sin. The Bible is clear. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. We will never be judged for sin. But every one of us, as God's people, will stand before the judgment or bema seat of Christ, and we will give an account for what we did subsequent to our faith in Christ. We will be judged, and we will be re rewarded. And those things that don't stand the test of judgment will be burned up, and those things that do, we will be rewarded for those things. I want you to listen carefully. Every act of mercy that we show to another human being will be accounted as a positive asset in the day of our judgment. But Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? When did we give you a cup of water? When did we show you mercy? I don't remember showing it. And see, and that's a hu that, that is a humble spirit. Why? Because that person never even thought of what they were doing. They just did it out of their heart. Lord, when did we see that? He said, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. The least, to the minority, to those who are in, a, in that minority, whatever status that it is, regardless of what that minority status it is. You know, if you're in high school and you're in college and you extend a gracious hand to the geek at your school, to the one who is chastised by the fellow uh, teammates, for example, the one who's maybe not as good as the rest and just barely made the team, the one who is the geek that's made fun of in class, the one that nobody talks to, the new person that comes that no one wants anything to do. When you initiate and you reach out to that person, do you realize that God will reward you one day for the mercy that you show to another? And you know what? It doesn't stop as we get older. That new person at work, that new person in your community, that new person at church, when we reach out to those who nobody else reaches out to, God says that, hey, I put it into the positive balance of your account, and one day you will be rewarded. And you know what? And mercy always, always outweighs judgment. Isn't that a wonderful truth? story that I heard, and we'll close on this, is that his name was Bill. He had wild hair. He wore a T-shirt. had holes in it. He had jeans. He had no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for the entire four years that he was in college, but he was also brilliant. He was kind of eccentric, but very, very bright. He came to know Christ while he was in college. And across the street from the campus was a typical Christian conservative church. They wanted to develop a ministry to college students, but weren't sure how to go about it. So one day Bill decided to go there. He walked in with his normal attire, no shoes, jeans, t-shirt with holes in it and wild hair. The service had already begun as Bill started down the aisle looking for a seat in the church, but the church was completely packed and he couldn't find one. By now, people were looking a little bit uncomfortable, but no one said anything. Bill got closer and closer to the pulpit when he realized there were no seats, so he dropped to the floor and he sat in front of the preacher quite comfortably on the carpeted floor. By this time, people were really uptight, as you can imagine, and the tension was thick in the air. Says, and also, the pastor realized that uh, from the back of the church, there was a deacon who was slowly moving his way toward Bill. 
Now, the deacon was about 80 and had silver-gray hair and a three-piece suit, a gold pocket watch. He was a godly man, very eloquent, very dignified, very courtly, very proper. He walked with a cane, and as he slowly moved forward toward the young man, everyone said to themselves, well, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. After all, I'm sure he's making the pastor feel pretty uncomfortable sitting in front of him like that. He says, how can you expect a man of his age and background to understand some college kids sitting on the floor in front of the pastor? It took him a long time to get down to the front, and as the boy sat there silently, except for the clicking thump of the old man's cane coming toward him, all eyes were focused on this man as he walked down. And people were thinking the poor pastor hasn't even begun a sermon yet, and the deacon has to do what he's about to do. Then as the elderly man got there, he whispered into the young man's ear, and, and uh, the young man gave him a shake and shook his head yes, and the next thing he saw was the old man sat down next to him. So the old man sat there throughout the sermon. With great difficulty, he lowered himself down, sat there next to him, worshipped with him, sat there, showed him references in his Bible, whatever it was that was going on, and everyone choked up with emotion. You can hear some people crying. You can see others have tears and try to wipe them away and do those things that guys do, you know, do the fake yawn. Um, <clears throat> but when the minister regained his composure, he said this, what I'm about to preach, you will probably never remember. But what you have just seen, you will never forget. And I want to challenge each of us to live our lives in a way that perhaps, as people around us see it, we preach one of the most powerful messages that people will never be able to forget as we reach out to those who around, around us who are different than us, different than the world, and different what the world finds to be acceptable. Because you know what? God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And it's time that we lay our thoughts aside and we adopt the mind of Christ. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word and the relevance of it today. Even today, we see the kind of prejudices in our society and, and yet we see the, the seemingly quietness of those who claim to know you. God, I just pray that all of us who have come to know you through Christ would be bold in our convictions to make sure that we never treat others around us any differently because of external appearances, but we judge others according to their behavior for the things that they choose to do and not for how they look. God, we just thank you that you are not a God who chooses us based on who we are or what we have because you realize you're not a respecter of persons because everything we have and everything you've given us, you've given to us. And so how can we get too excited about ourselves when we should be excited about the giver? Father, we just thank you that you made us the way that we are and that you hold us accountable for the choices that we make. You never hold us accountable for the color of our skin never hold us accountable necessarily for how much money we have or don't have or what we wear or don't wear, although those things may be choices that we make that you'll judge. But God, we just pray that you continue to judge us for the choices that we make. And Father, I just pray that each person hearing these words would choose to love others as they love themselves, as they love you first, that it will overflow in their love and their acceptance of those around them. And Lord, I just thank you and praise you that that's how you have chosen us that whosoever will come will come, that whosoever would believe in him, speaking of Jesus, would not perish but have everlasting life. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.